Welcome to another episode of Thinking Like a Bank, where we show you how to think like a bank by applying the same strategies and principles that banks use to help you find more financial freedom in your life. I'm your host, Sarah Ibrahim. Today, I'm interviewing Brandon Hall. Brandon is a certified public accountant, national speaker, and is the founder, managing partner of Hall CPA PLLC. Brandon works with real estate investors, syndicates, and private equity funds to optimize tax positions and streamline accounting and business functions. He believes that real estate investing is critical to building sustainable and generational wealth. Brandon worked at PwC and Ernest & Young prior to launching his own CPA firm. Through the knowledge gained through working with real estate investors, Brandon has built a real estate portfolio of 25 units consisting of multifamily, single-family, and short-term rentals. Brandon, welcome to our podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. I'm excited to interview you, get to know you a little bit more. Um, I know before we start recording, we're talking about we're going to talk about taxes and real estate. Before that, do you mind sharing with us more about your background and why you why you chose this specific niche? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I uh, I started with PwC as my first like big boy job in 2013. I was on the consulting side of the business, and I probably got I was like three months into that and realized I do not want to do this the rest of my life. <laughs> So I immediately started looking for a way out of the corporate world um, and through that process found real estate. Uh, I also found business ownership um, kind of through that process as well. But uh, but I, I, I remember I joined Bigger Pockets and I was asking a bunch of questions about how to buy my own rental. Uh, and then through that process, I saw that there were a ton of people asking tax questions and I was getting my CPA at the time. So I thought it'd be fun to just sort of test my knowledge and and you you do and you and then you know you give people answers and they're really nice on the bigger pockets form they go thank you so much you're so great right so it's like a nice little ego hit or ego yeah. boost and yeah. uh positive feedback loop that i wasn't really getting at my day job so i got a little addicted to answering people's tax questions and therefore got a lot of reps in in terms of learning about taxes and how it all works uh and then through the process bought a rental property and and that was awesome uh so my first property that i ever bought was a three unit property and uh, it, it's a it's a beast. Uh, cash flow is like at the time cash flow was like seven eight hundred bucks a month, and I'd put down thirty k, and it was amazing. But I kind of took a step back and I realized, you know, real estate's great, but this is going to take me a long time to get out of the corporate world. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I'd like switched over to Ernst and Young at that point. Uh, so I decided to to dial it up on the Bigger Pockets forum and really try to create a business out of uh, answering tax questions. And there, that is what, that's where the CPA form, firm was eventually born. So um, eventually people started reaching out to me, asking questions, asking if they could work with me. Uh, and eventually I said, yes. And the rest is history. And now you're a, you're a CPA for specifically real estate investors and business owners who own real estate, right? That's like, that's all you do essentially. Yep. Yep. So we have about 800 clients across the United States. They are all in real estate in some capacity. We work with people at the very beginning of their journey, at the middle of their journey, and then at the end of their journey. Um, you know, we, we work with clients that have a nine figure net worth. We work with clients that have a 500K net worth. Uh, our, our biggest client is a private equity fund that buys a ton of homes a month, and we are their outsourced CFO. So we manage their entire financial process. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool. It's kind of morphed into this thing and I didn't intend for it to be this way, but it, it morphed into this, this thing where we can really scale with a client. Cause mm -hmm. what I've learned is that a lot of real estate investors, well, what do you do? You keep buying real estate, right? You, you have a little bit of success. And so you buy more and you buy more and you buy more. 
And, uh, and our firm has kind of turned into this thing where, yeah, you can scale with us all the way up and into nine figures, at least. So we, we don't have a billionaire client yet, but uh, we're working on it. Um, so you can scale with us and it's cool, uh, to see, to see people throughout their journey, but I have a team of, uh, 40 or 40 or so U S employees. Uh, I've got 20 offshore between the Philippines and India. So we've become a relatively sizable operation. And the interesting thing is most of our employees own rental real estate themselves. So when you are working with us as a client, it's not just from a tax perspective. We also love to just chum it up and talk investments. <laughs> yeah, very nice. And I, I could tell too, like following you on LinkedIn and your other content, like you're really big on a, a virtual uh, CPA firm. I believe your CPA firm is 100% virtual, right? 100% remote. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's it's been interesting too, because a lot of firms... Like I, I've like kind of like started making an impact in the actual accounting world. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of firm owners are starting to look to us and and ask like, how are we doing different things? But what I've noticed is firms that use like outsourced employees, right? Like offshore employees. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Philippines and India, they use them as service centers. Yeah. And so when clients have historically like gotten tax preparation done with firms that are using offshore uh, employees, the quality that they that the clients typically receive is poor. But it's because the offshore employees are treated as a service center. There's no real investment into upskilling them, upleveling them. Um, and that's what the vast majority of firms do in the accounting space right now. So I looked at that and I said, hey, we know how to run remote teams. These other firms don't know how to run remote teams. We're 100% remote. Mm -hmm. So let's take a different approach. Let's actually try to try to build these people up to be real employees we give them swag we, we they have performance bonuses they have all the same performance checks that our current employees do and let's like actually try to create career paths for them it's just a different country um and man that has been a massive unlock for us this tax season we have struggled with tax seasons year year after year after year and if your client listening or an ex-client listening you're probably nodding along going yeah yeah they did <laughs> uh, but dude this tax season we we dominated this tax season our clients loved it we had like a less than 1% or 2% um client issue rate either being like a an error that a client caught or just a client that's mad or upset mm -hmm. and that's the first year that's ever happened to us like if you'd have told me that we could do this 12 months ago i'd been like no way but the big unlock was really investing heavily into the offshore and but building them up and upskilling them and up leveling them, not just treating them like a service center. Mm -hmm. And it just allows our US team to spend more time on the customer service, more time with the clients, more time understanding their situation and their context, rather than churning through tax returns as fast as they possibly can. Which is essentially what like a lot of CPAs do, right? Like most yeah. I think most CPAs are in the tax planning, tax, not tax, tax prep uh business. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. If you're in the tax prep business, this is another thing that I've learned only only once I've I've spoken with a ton of these firms about how they work. You know, most CPA firms are going to target like a 40, 45, 50% margin on the tax preparation work. So every dollar that you give them for tax preparation, they're trying to they're trying to clear 50 cents. Mm -hmm. And and there's really two ways that they get that done. One, their partners are very heavily involved in the actual preparation themselves, right? So, you know, you can't reach Brandon during tax season because Brandon's got to file 300 returns in order to clear a 50% margin and, and survive. Um, or two, and or two, sometimes it's both, uh, we understaff. So, you know, we know that we need 20 people, but we're only going to hire 15 
because I need margin, right? And this is how I make my money. Mm-hmm. Now at our firm, we we take a different approach. So we say, well, let's aim for like a 15 or 20% margin. This year we aim for 25. And so it's still a, great for our clients, a little rocky for our staff. Our staff, Some of our staff are still working long hours. So next year it's okay. Instead of targeting a 25% margin, let's target 20 and maybe even 18 and what that and, and where where that variance goes is right into U.S. Um, seniors, right? So we're going to hire more staff to help spread the busy season load. Um, but anyway, yeah. So the point the point is is that when you work with a firm that's got a good accounting practice, a good advisory practice, that's where they're going to uh, be making their money. It doesn't make tax compliance any less valuable, but what it probably means for the client is that they're going to have a better experience going through that process. That makes sense. I see that. And uh, as I made the mistake of saying tax planning, could you could you mind sharing with us what are the differences between tax prep and tax planning? So I like to think about preparation as retroactive. So if you come to me today and you say, hey, I need tax services, I'm going to ask, well, are, do you need preparation or do you need planning? Mm-hmm. So preparation is I've already done the stuff and now I just need to report my status report, if you will, to the IRS and states. Mm-hmm. That's tax preparation. There's no tax planning and tax preparation. It is all just, you've got the data and I'm going to make sure that it's compliant with mm-hmm. IRS and state laws, right? And that is valuable. I think a lot of people get confused. They're like, well, I gave my stuff to my CPA and they didn't save me any money. Well, they're not supposed to save you any money when we're going through the preparation piece because that is a compliance service. That's not a strategic service. It's compliance. It's still valuable because you don't want to make a mistake and have any federal or government agencies breathing down your neck. That's a super stressful place to be. Uh, So it's still valuable because you get to sleep well at night. You know it's been done correctly, but it's not the planning service. It's not the savings that you're probably looking for. So planning is the strategy. That's the. It's typically forward looking. There are some things that you can do retroactively. So that's why I didn't want to like just axe the retroactive look. You can do some things retroactively, but for the most part, it's where are you today in terms of your investing, your real estate, your your income streams? Where are you going to be over the next 12 to 24 months? And what are the top strategies that have the highest return on your time and your investment? What are those strategies and how do we execute those? Uh, We are a really big firm now on not giving you a hundred different strategies. Mm -hmm. We used to do that. We used to think that that's what value was. But what we noticed is that clients never implemented anything because they would receive this like 80 page document of like all the strategies they could possibly do. And they would take absolutely no action. So Mm -hmm. now what we do is we, we try to really align the strategies with what the client's actually doing. Um, and a lot of it too, is like education. It's just helping you understand what to look out for so that you can also proactively optimize your tax position as you're operating your real estate portfolio and growing it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of work. A lot of people think like, I'll just give everything to my CPA. The CPA will do all the thinking for me, all the math for me, all the research for me. And that's not always true. Like the client has, they have to also be educated. They have to listen to podcasts. I know you have a couple of courses on your website. They have to take these actions, right? Um, yep. For them to be responsible for their own tax situation. Yeah. And a really simple example of that. So so I think most investors start with that, right? They mm-hmm. say, well, I have a CPA and they do all that tax stuff for me and I don't have to think about it. Yeah. But what I've noticed is that as investors add more properties, they start to, to understand why they need to be a little more sophisticated on the tax side. Because, and this is a good example, 
what'll happen is like you don't really you, you give it to your CPA, it's all fine and dandy until you go to sell a property one time, right? And then the question becomes, should I do a 1031 exchange or not? And to answer that question, you have to understand what your suspended losses are that you're carrying forward. And to understand that, you have to know where to look in your tax returns. And hopefully you've been looking at that every year because sometimes CPAs miss that. They mess up or ta tax pros miss it, mess yeah. up, especially in years that you switch accountants. If you ever decided like, you know, I'm going to move from one firm to another, well, my suspended passive losses that I'm carrying forward, hopefully made it into the new tax return. Otherwise they just all disappeared and that's not good. Uh, but if I've got 200K of suspended passive losses and I've got a 200K gain on this property that I'm about to sell, guess what? I don't have to do a 1031 exchange. I don't have to go through that process. But if I'm uneducated about this, I'm going to default to, I need to do the 1031 exchange. So I might be going through this 1031 process without actually needing to. So so yeah, so what happens is it, it typically does start with the, uh, it's just way too overwhelming. Yeah. Like give it to my CPA to do everything. But there's um, that, that, that lack of understanding of your own tax situation will cost you at some later point, either your tax team is going to make a mistake. We're all human. I, I love my team. I think that we are amazing. I think we're one of the best, but we still make mistakes, especially, yeah. you know, around April 15th. We're just, we're trying to crank, right? We're trying to get through the stuff. So people are going to make mistakes. It's better if you understand what to look at and if you're educated and a little bit, a little bit more sophisticated than the non, the regular, you know, American uh, mm -hmm. that's maybe not investing in real estate. Uh, and, that, and that's like why we created all those, you know, we, we did all that education. It's why we do all the free content, the paid content. It's why we have our own mastermind or uh, our own community group. So we're really like, even if you're not going to work with us as a client, here is still some powerful information that you can use to make your situation better. And then the suspended losses you mentioned, that's like when you're not a real estate professional and you can't take those losses against yeah. your active income or other non-passive income, you would have to suspend those to a later day. So do you mind differentiating like when you are a real estate professional and not, and then suspended losses? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you nailed it. Right. So, so I've got two buckets of income. Mm -hmm. I have the passive income bucket and the non-passive income bucket. Uh, in the passive income bucket is all rental real estate, unless I qualify as a real estate professional mm -hmm. and any trade or business that I don't materially participate in. All right. So if I, if I buy a rental that goes into the passive bucket, mm -hmm. if I invest in a hair salon, and uh, and they're using my capital for expansion, but I'm not I'm not participating in the management. I'm not per, I'm not working in the hair salon. That is a passive investment that goes into the passive bucket as well, right? So those are the types of things you know, rentals, any trade or business that I'm passively involved in that goes into the passive bucket. My passive losses can offset my passive income, so my rental losses can offset my hair salon share of a profit that I receive because they're both passive. Um, what I can't do. Like if my rental losses offset all my passive income and I still have rental losses, I can't use those passive rental losses to offset my non-passive income. Mm -hmm. My non-passive income is like my CPA firm income, right? I'm running this 40 hours a week. Uh, this is something I am materially participating in. Any net profit that I receive is non-passive. If you have a W-2 job, that's non-passive. Interest, capital gain income from stock sales dividends, uh, that's all non-passive as well. And I know that sounds weird, but that's the way the rules are written. So that's all going in the non-passive bucket. So my rental losses cannot offset that income unless I qualify as a real estate professional. So if I qualify as a real estate professional, I can use the rental losses to offset that non-passive income, assuming that I also materially participate in the rentals. Um, but if I don't qualify as a real estate professional, and if I have these, uh, these passive losses 
that are in excess of all my passive income, then the losses do become suspended and they carry forward year to year. To qualify as a real estate professional, you have to spend 750 hours working in real property trades or businesses. Can be multiple real property trades or businesses. Does not have to be like just being a landlord. You could be a real estate broker for a thousand hours. You you hit it right there, right? So 750 hours working in real property trades or businesses and more time working in real property trades or businesses than anywhere else. So I have to exceed my hour, my hours spent in real estate have to exceed everything else that I do. So I personally cannot qualify as a real mm-hmm. estate professional because I spend 2000 hours a year working in my CPA firm. The IRS will never believe that I spent an additional 2001 hours working on my rental portfolio. They're just not going to buy it. Right. I think that comes out to like some like 80 hours a week with no vacations, no breaks, no sick days. So they're, they're not going to buy it. And if you can, if you can't convince them and you still believe it's true, you go to tax court and tax court's not going to buy it either. Multiple people have tried. I'm sure somebody will figure it out at some point, but it hasn't worked yet. So that's how you qualify as a real estate professional, but, but people with full-time jobs, you're kicked out of that. So your rentals are going to be passive unless you have like a spouse, like my spouse, since we file a joint tax return, my spouse could qualify as a real estate professional. And now my joint tax return is effectively a real estate professional status tax return. Um, so I get to benefit, even though I personally am not the real estate professional. So you can do that, but you always have to make sure that you materially participate in your rentals. And what I mean by that is you could qualify as a real estate professional by being a real estate agent for a thousand hours a year. So, and, and maybe that's all you do, right? So I, I beat the 750 hour test and I beat the more time in real estate than anywhere else because this is all I'm doing is being a real estate agent. So I'm a real estate professional, but if I forget to materially participate in my rentals, they are still passive. So you always have to qualify as a real estate professional and also materially participate in your rentals in order to make them non-passive. And then can you give examples of what does it mean to materially participate? Yeah. So there are seven tests for material participation. Uh, The three that we see most often met are number one, your participation is substantially all of the participation, meaning that you did all the work. Nobody else did anything. You didn't have contractors, maintenance crews, nothing. You did everything. Uh, There's no property management company. So that's test one. If you could do that, you know, in theory, in theory with a big asterisk of please run this by your CPA, do not take my word for granted. Um, but in theory, if you if your participation is, let's say you spend 50 hours uh, working on your rentals and nobody else did anything, so your 50 hours are all of the time that anybody spent on the rentals, then you met that substantially all test in theory. So in theory, you could materially participate with like 50 hours, 70 hours, I don't know. Um, but again, theory. So that's that's one test. The second test is 100 hours and more than anyone else. So if I spend 100 hours working on my passive activity, and this is looked at on a per property basis, by the way, unless you make a grouping election uh, to group them all in together, but I have to spend 100 hours um, on my rental and I have to I have to outwork everybody else. So if I have a cleaning crew that spends 102 hours during the year, like if we're talking about short-term rentals, then I have to spend... 100 hours and more than the cleaning crew. So I have to spend 103 hours in order to materially participate. All right. So that's test two. Test three is I spend 500 hours working on my activities, working on my rentals. Um, Typically when it comes to long-term rentals, people hit test number three, 500 hours, and they group their rentals together. So now I'm spending 500 hours on my rental portfolio, Mm -hmm. and that's much more achievable uh, when we're talking about material participation, but there's there's um, four additional tests. You only have to hit one test to materially mm-hmm. participate. And the hours that 
that typically count are going to be like effectively property management type hours, right? Like if you think about buying a rental property, the hours that count towards the 750 hour test for real estate professional status, the material participation tests that I just listed, those hours are going to be like, I'm a property manager. So you can't count education and research time. Everybody would love to, yeah. right? You'd love to just listen to this podcast and say, yeah, that's an hour for my real estate professional status. But <laughs> listening to this podcast does not help you collect rents or pay bills, right? Yeah. Your properties are still going to perform whether or not you listen to this podcast. The same thing is about any podcast, any sort of networking event, conference that you go to, your rentals will still collect rent. You will still pay bills even if you never attended those conferences. So that's all education hours, and that does not count as material participation. Same thing for research. I could sit on realtor.com all day yeah. long while I'm doing my day job and count it as research, right? So obviously, we're not going to allow that. Uh, and when I say we, the IRS is not yeah. going to allow that. Tax court is not going to allow that. Um, they're not going to allow travel hours for the most part. If you have local properties like in, you know within a 30, 45-minute drive, that type of travel can count if you're visiting your properties on a consistent basis, i.e. like daily, um, then your your drive time to your rentals can count. But if you're flying somewhere, if you are driving to a property that's hours away, that travel time is not going to count um, in, in most, in the vast majority of cases. And then the last thing that does not count is going to be investor level hours. Now, what does that mean? That means anything that an investor would do. Right, so due diligence, uh, getting getting connected with property management companies and mortgage brokers and attorneys and all that stuff, going through the that acquisition phase, that is all investor level hours, and that time does not count unless you are involved in the day to day management of the property. So if you don't have a property manager, and you're going to self manage, all of a sudden all that time counts. So think about that the next time you go through all this due diligence on a property, and you're mm -hmm. you're spending all this time underwriting and working with the mortgage broker and the the property broker and the attorney, the closing attorney, none of that time is going to count unless you are involved in the day-to-day -day management of the activity after you close, meaning you don't have a property manager. So it's really hard to get the status. Like a lot of people don't qualify for this. <laughs> really. it, it, yeah, it's definitely not as easy as people would think. And, yeah. and it, it was designed that way intentionally. Like, yeah. like back in 1986, when Congress put these rules into place, uh, what they did, the, the whole purpose of it was to prevent rich people from using rental real estate to offset their rich person income, right? <laughs> so we're not simultaneously going to make it easy for you to go and qualify as a real estate professional and materially participate. Yeah. Um. So the, the the real estate professional status rules, they came into play in the 90s and they were put into place to help people that were in real estate full time use the rental losses to offset their other real estate income, right? It wasn't to help the physician who's earning a million dollars a year offset the the physician income. And what we end up with in in like online, we end up with a lot of groupthink. We end up with a lot of FOMO, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think I think real estate investors by nature are more competitive. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, we're a little more entrepreneurial. We want to accomplish big things. We want to get the cash flow. We want to get the wealth, right? And so we see other people accomplishing what we want to accomplish. And we get a little bit of FOMO and we go, I want to do that too. And so what happens is you get these groups that say, oh, I'm a real estate professional. My CPA allowed me to do it. And then everybody's like, cool, I'm going to use that CPA. So we're all going to be real estate professionals. But the way that these audits work is the IRS, you know, will pull one, one of the returns from that CPA group just randomly. That's the random one. They'll pull it and they'll go, hey, man, this guy's not a real estate professional. So we're going to disallow that. And then they go, uh, you know, how'd you get to this? Well, my CPA told me the CPA that signed the return. Yeah, that guy. Okay, let's go pull other returns that the CPA has signed. 
that have that have the similar facts and circumstances on it, right? And that's how I, I saw there was a group in California. They had like, oh gosh, it wasn't real estate professional status. It was some uh, sham partnership, something that that mm-hmm. they're that the firm was setting up. But it was like some hundred people got pulled for an audit. Like the the client base got pulled. So like like it becomes less random when you work with firms that will you know take liberties and just take your word at it and just you know be a little loosey goosey on the trigger there. <laughs> right. And then if you can't meet the real estate professional status, then there's another one, the short term rental, which is a little bit probably more achievable, right? And you might understand what that is and, and how you can qualify for that one. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, most people, uh, first, I want to want to talk about like, if you can't qualify for a real, a real estate professional, uh, if you can't qualify as a reps, it's not the end of the world. Um, a lot of people come to us and they go, well, I can't qualify, so I'm not getting any tax benefits. But that's not true because even though you have a tax loss, you're still not paying tax on the cash flow that you receive from your rentals. And I always like to put that into, into perspective. Like if you can qualify as a real estate professional, if you can do the short-term rental thing, that's all great. But don't, again, don't get the 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 FOMO going, right? So you're still benefiting because you're not paying tax on the cash flow when you create tax losses from your rentals, even if you can't use those tax losses. Mm-hmm. But the short-term rental thing. So, so yeah, so if you buy a short-term rental, and if the average period of customer use is seven days or less uh, for every customer that comes in there, um, then you do not have a rental activity. Uh, the words are important. Definitions are important. You don't have a rental activity under Section 469. Section 469 says all rental activities are passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional. Section 469 also says any other trade or business that you don't materially participate in is passive, right? So those are the two, two things. But if I don't have a rental activity, then I don't have to worry about qualifying as a real estate professional. Okay. All I have to do is worry about materially participating in the business because that's that other piece of section 469. The significance here is that I can I can materially participate by hitting one of those seven tests or one of the three that we previously talked about a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. I can I can hit one of those tests. I will be materially participating and the activity will be non-passive. Uh, because it's not a rental activity. So I don't have to qualify as a real estate professional. And and so I can buy a short-term rental. I can spend 100 hours more than anyone else. And now it'll be a non-passive activity. I can cost segregate it, mm-hmm. bonus depreciate it, and take the big tax loss against my full-time W-2 income or my full-time CPA firm income because I don't have to worry about qualifying as a real estate professional. Because real estate professional status, that's the one that says you have to spend more time in real estate than anywhere else. So if you don't have to qualify as a real estate professional, you don't have to worry about that. So essentially, if you are a higher income earner working a full-time job and you are dead set on using real estate to offset your income, you can buy short-term rentals. You can uh, you know, make sure that average period of customer use is seven days or less. Uh, and you can use the tax losses to offset your W-2 income as long as you are materially participating. There are a lot of nuances. Mm-hmm. Do not listen to this podcast and just go off and buy a short-term rental and try to DIY this. Yeah. Uh, you will set yourself up for failure. So make sure that you get some professional advice, but absolutely can be done. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a good idea. But but even more important than all of this, I listened to one of your recent podcasts on your podcast, and it was Don't Let the Tax... What was it? Sorry. What, that little, tax tail wag the dog. Yeah. 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 In other <laughs> words, don't make all your decisions based off of tax benefits, because if you do so... exactly. Uh, you can get in a lot of trouble and it can actually cost you a lot more than intended. Well, exactly. I mean, I mean, I see people all the time, like 
like I was at a conference recently and I spoke. <clears throat> and then after the conference, I had a handful of people come up to me. And one person was like, well, I really want to invest in oil and gas. Because <laughs> I put 100K into oil and gas, then I get a $70,000 write-off on Schedule C, which is true. There is yep. a special carve-out for oil and gas investments. Most oil and gas, oil and gas investments. Um, to make sure, again, you understand those rules. But uh, they're like, what do you think? Is that a good good strategy? Like, I really need to knock down my tax liability. And I was like, well... You know, sure. Like, like if you are, if you are in a high tax state, let's call it 10%. Yeah. And you're in the highest income tax bracket, 37%. Um, that's a 47% total marginal rate. If you invest hundred K and you get a $70,000 tax deduction times 47%, yeah. you're roughly at what, like $33,000 in savings or so. So I put hundred K into this oil and gas investment and I immediately got this like $33,000 refund between federal and state. Uh, that sounds pretty good. But what we also have to think about is I still have 67K of basis essentially in this oil and gas investment. So is the oil and gas investment going to perform? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, is is that going to be successful? It, do they have a track record of performance? Am I going to double my money? Like, like that's the thing that I've tried to like impart upon people. Yeah, all this, all this stuff is sexy. Don't get me yeah. wrong. I love this stuff. And <laughs> and I love saving people money, but to my potential detriment, you know, from for people listening, potentially coming to work with me, dude, I want you to make money first and then let's figure out taxes. I, I, I tell people all the time, like I would much rather pay a million dollars in taxes. I'd rather have that yeah. problem because that means that my income is probably five, six, seven million dollars. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. like I'd rather I'd rather blow this thing up. So so focus on expanding your income, focus on expanding your wealth. And as we go along figure out the tax pieces too. The key is just to become more sophisticated in tax as you plot along in your wealth wealth building journey. Exactly. Not always like having this mindset of like, I want to get rid of every tax bill I, I come across because that could, that will actually result in like more problems for you. Oh yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, and, and you got to think too, there, there's always hassle with all this stuff, right? Yeah. The hassle can either be the time that it takes me to do all the admin paperwork to keep up with this or I'm going to lose sleep at night because I got into some weird tax position that could get audited later. And, and I just don't feel comfortable about it. Well, that, that's hassle. And the question is like, do you really want that hassle? Like I could probably fully optimize my tax position, uh, but I don't because I don't want to invest all that time to save yeah. a little bit of dollars. The time that I have to invest, I want to focus on creating additional income streams, right? I want to make my taxes. I want to increase my tax liability <laughs> via additional income streams. So it's just kind of like a mindset shift that um, I think I think most people make. I, I think they get it, uh, yeah. but you know, at first, when you're when you it, it's it's hard when you transition out of a W two job where you've been reamed your entire life because you're just getting crushed on taxes yeah. into this real estate where all of a sudden things are tax efficient merely because you're buying rental real estate. Like when you buy rental real estate, it all of a sudden becomes tax efficient. Like the actual income stream, that added income stream. But I think I think we can go overboard from time to time in trying to eliminate taxes um, versus just optimize for taxes. Right, exactly. And then speaking of time, I know like you're based on the content you've shared. Like I think your your firm charges clients differently. Like whereas the traditional model is either billable hours or like a per tax return fee. Uh, but there's there's a third thing, right? A new world. It's like a value based. Uh, planning or value-based yeah. pricing. Is that what you guys do? And you mind sharing what that is? 
Yeah. Um, I think, I think some people would look at what we do and say, you guys have value-based pricing and some people would just say it's just fixed pricing. Okay. Um, so, so we, we fix price every service, but 98% of our services, we fix price. Sometimes we get into situations with like clients that just have a really weird situation. And we're like, yeah, we have no idea what this is going to look like. So we're just going to run this hourly and cross our fingers. Hope it works. Um, but like our, our tax planning and advisory, we, we fix price that. And and what we do, the value component, I think the value pricing component, I think kind of comes from like a multi-tiered offering. So like we have three different versions of tax planning and what we do on our consultations with prospective clients is we have a 30 or 30 minute or so conversation with them to try to figure out which one of those tiers makes the most sense. Um, so each tier comes at a different price, but they are all fixed priced. And we're just trying to figure out what tier is going to make the most sense for you. Uh, so that's kind of where that works. But for tax preparation, we fix price that and we quote everything upfront. So like, uh, like if you were to join us in November and December for returning clients, we would send you a, a little tool thing that we've built out. You would go through that process and then we would say, here's the quote to get your tax returns done. Do you want to do this? Everybody says, yes. Or a lot of people say yes. Um, and, uh, and then you pay like a, a bit of that up front and then a bit of that at the end, whenever we're done. Okay. Then and, then. and that's kind of like, I guess also in a way valued price because people with higher uh, or larger portfolios or uh, more like states, K1s, they -hmm. have a higher price. We're not really like looking, like if you had a W2 job and you had no rentals and you had no K1s and you had, you lived in Texas, you know, so there's no state return. It's just your W2. Even if your W2 is like 10 mil, you know, we're not going to go and charge you 10 grand for the tax return. And that's where, that's where the whole value pricing conversation sometimes breaks down in my mind. Oh, okay. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. Uh, well, Brandon, it was a pleasure interviewing you on the podcast. How can the listeners connect with you and learn more about you? Yeah. So you can check us out at www.therealestatecpa.com. That's the best place to go. We've got our podcast on there. Our podcast has a ton of, we, we do a weekly episode, uh, teaching landlords about tax advice. Um, and we've got about 130,000 listeners a month now. It's a pretty big deal. Um, so we've got our podcast, we've got a bunch of other resources there too. We've got guides on real estate professional status and short-term rentals that you can download. Um, and then if you're interested in becoming a client, you can also go to the realestatecpa.com and there's a big button that says, uh, work with us or something like that. So you can check that out too. That's the best place to go. Awesome. Brandon. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's fun. To learn more about what we do and how we can help you grow more wealth, please visit www.finassetprotection.com. That's F-I-N assetprotection.com. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal accounting or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.